Well, good morning. It's such a blessing to be able to worship our God in spirit and in truth with the saints of God. And we present someone at the beginning of life. We pray for someone perhaps nearing the end of life. And yet we worship the Ancient of Days. He doesn't change. Because he doesn't change, we have hope and steadfastness and comfort. Encourage you, if you've not already, to make sure your cell phones are turned to silent. Let me take this time to say good morning to those of you that are joining us online. Thank you for setting aside this time and being with us. We who are gathered here send our greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever you might be, we invite you to turn to your copy of God's Word and join us as we study in our time in Matthew 21 this morning. It was late in the day, and there was still oh so much to do. The noise and hustle and bustle of the day had finally quieted down. It was not hard to notice that there was excitement among the neighbors as they chatted and interacted. The rumors floated about about all that had happened over the last couple of days. But with all of the preparations for the important holiday that was upon them, who had time to follow up with any of these things? There was still the evening meal to prepare, the fire needed tending to, the bedding needed to be prepared for the house guests who had come to spend the week. The day was full enough as it is. How could one keep up with the current events? Finally, the chores of the day were finished, and Mary and Martha started to serve the evening meal to their guests. And Mary asked innocently enough, how did it go in Jerusalem today, Jesus? Now, the story is completely made up, but it does give a picture of what was going on that Passion Week 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And since Jesus was staying in Bethany during that week, the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and since he was a close friend, it is likely that's where he lodged, for lodging would have been hard to come by during such an important time as the week of Passover. So what did happen on that momentous day? And that is the message of the passage that we'll be studying today, Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. In this passage, we will see Jesus showing in full color and vigor his actions as the true son of David. And with that, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning. And may he who has ears to hear... Let him hear. And the holy word of God says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of God given for our edification. Let us receive it for its intended purpose. Please be seated. 
and let us pray. Oh God, as we turn to you in these moments now, we are dependent upon you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to give us hearts to believe and wills to receive and to be bent according to your will and your ways. And so, Father, as needy people, we cry out to you and say, help us in these moments. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand your word. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at scripture in the life of Jesus, we see that he's very intentional in showing that he is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises that were given of old. And he's the ultimate fulfillment of the offices of prophet and priest and king. Throughout the history of the people of God, it was possible for one person to be one of those roles, but only one could be all three, and that is the one to whom scriptures point. And so over the next several chapters, as we've entered into a new phase, as it were, in the gospel according to Matthew, we're going to see shades of Jesus as he moves to the cross, shades of Jesus being the king, being the prophet, being the priest. For example, last week we saw Jesus enter into the city of Jerusalem as a king, but a misunderstood one. And while he is king now, and he reigns in our hearts, and he reigns and rules through his church, we long for the day when the fullness of his kingdom comes, and he rules over a renewed creation as king of kings and lord of lords. Yet even now he is the prince of peace, and therefore he is worthy of our highest praise, that we should be the ones who join into the throngs and say, Hosanna in the highest. Today we will see Jesus in his role as a prophet. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God. He's the one who performs the actions and judgments of God. In general terms, a prophet is one who brings both comfort and judgment. In older terms, we would say a prophet is one who brings both weal and woe. The prophet confirms, uh, comforts the afflicted. The prophet afflicts the comforted. Yet Jesus shows that he is more than a prophet with the actions that he performs in these few verses, giving hint at his role as priest and hint at his role of king. So I invite you, if you have not already, to turn to your sermon outline in the bulletin or on the church app as we dive into this passage now. And our first major point is Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus has now come into the city. There had been a time of celebration and singing and dancing and chanting and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And we saw last week as we got to the end of our passage, the whole city was stirred up. How could they not be? This was the feast of the Passover. The crowds were there, and yet here is one that's being celebrated in a way that people have not seen before. And so they ask, who is this? And others in the crowd gave the answer, you recall, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He is a prophet. He's able to bring judgment of God. But he's a unique type of prophet. He has come to suffer for the people of God. He's a unique type of priest. He will actually be the offering himself. But as a prophet, he will perform the acts of God. So first we see the protection of God's house. The protection of God's house. And our text begins with just a simple introduction. And Jesus entered the temple. So I'm going to stop there to just draw attention to something, and that is Matthew 
often telescopes his events. That is to say, he sees the big picture, he sees the main ideas, and it sometimes passes over some of the details that gets us to the main idea. He knows why he is writing and to whom he is writing. He's writing to the Jewish people. His goal is to share that Jesus is taking charge over the temple, over the city, and the current way that things are being done by the priesthood of his day. But he passes over in doing that a couple of details which the other gospel writers helpfully provide to fill in the story. Mark tells us that when they came into the city after the time of celebration, that Jesus went and looked around the temple area, observed what was going on, and then went to spend the night in Bethany. And then the next morning he returned to the city. And this is where Matthew picks up the story this morning. And what we see is a planned demonstration on the part of Jesus. The temple complex was huge. After all of the constructions and renovations and additions that King Herod had given to it, it was estimated that going to all the temple court walls and the whole complex was the size of about 35 football fields. And with that, that's the last allusion to the Super Bowl you're going to get in this sermon. <laughs> On his day, Jesus would have entered the gate of Huldah at the southern end of the temple. The first he would enter into would be the court of the Gentiles, which surrounded the, the temple itself. It was part of the temple compound. Heavy walls all around the outside of it with doors that would restrict who could go in. And the court of the Gentiles was the only place for Gentiles to go. In fact, at the doors that would lead from the court of the Gentiles going into the inner courts, there were warning signs on the gates, warning all non-Jews, warning all Gentiles to not go past this point. And that's a key point as we consider what is happening in our text this morning. From the court of the Gentiles, the first inner court would be the court of the women, where righteous, pure, ritually ready Jewish women could go into the temple area. Beyond that was the court of the Israelites, where the ritually pure Jewish men could enter. And it was in that area where the sacrificial altar was located so that people could bring their offerings of grain and oil and animals or whatever it would be. From there, you would get into almost the temple itself because there would be the holy place where only priests could enter and then the most holy place or the holy of holies would allowed for the chief priest to enter but once a year. Each person knew what his sta status was, his social standing and how far he could go in the temple compound. So originally, this court of the Gentiles was to be the place where the Gentiles themselves could go and pray. But by the time of Jesus, that whole place had been transformed into a type of marketplace. There were tables for the money changers, tents for the sale of animals. All the provisions that one would need for worship and sacrifice in the temple could be purchased right there in the temple grounds in the court of the Gentiles. Now, initially, this could serve a functional purpose, a necessary purpose. Pilgrims would come from all over to come to the feast. A Jewish man was required to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. Coming from different parts in the Roman Empire, they would come with different types of currency. And each Jewish man was required to pay the temple tax, which was half a shekel a year. But that money could only be paid in the temple shekel, also known as the Tyrian silver coin. The Tyrian silver coin was considered the purest, the truest form of currency the most accurate and highest quality silver. So if people would want to come in to pay the temple tax, to purchase animals, to do what it was, they would have to exchange their money for the Tyrian coins. And of course, there was a fee involved. 
And then if they didn't use all of them while they were in the temple and they wanted to go back home, when they went dead, they would exchange their money back into their currency. And of course, there was another exchange fee going on. There may have been good intentions about this at the beginning, but by the time of Jesus, this has become a wonderful business model for the Sadducees who were over the operations of the temple. Jesus would not only see the money changers, he would see the seller of animals, which again, on the one hand, would be a necessary function. If you're coming from a great distance and you're coming to Jerusalem, it'd be difficult to bring the animal that you would offer in sacrifice. The road would be difficult. The animal risks being injured or malnourished. And oftentimes those animals would be rejected by the priest once you got there anyway. So, easier to buy the animal once you got to Jerusalem. But since there would be a great demand for these animals at the time of the feast, we all know what happens in supply and demand. The prices would go up. And a person would have to pay much more than if they were able to purchase an animal. Now the interesting thing is that there were animal markets available throughout the city where one could purchase an animal that could be brought to the temple. But if you're coming from a long distance, you're already worried about where you're going to find lodging, so where would you take care of this animal that you have to purchase? And so convenience caused most people to just wait until they went into the temple. And it's probably true that most of those serving in the court of the Gentiles were well-meaning and honest in their business affairs. But there was also a profit that would be made and there'd be temptation that would come because of the profits that could be made. And there's no doubt that there was exploitation that was going on. This would especially hit the poor the hardest because even all they could afford would be the small birds that would be offered. The prices would go up. And they'd come in three times a year and have to keep buying these offerings. And there'd be the sin offering, the guilt offering, the thanksgiving offering, the guilt, all the different offerings of offering for a firstborn, offering for ritual purity of a new mother, and on and on it went. And some of those would be offered even at Passover. So we can imagine then that the situation, it, it reeks of greed and exploitation and commercialism and profiteering, probably also reeks period just because of all the animals that would be there in the temple courtyard. So in this area that was set apart for holiness, that was set apart for service to God, it was being desecrated. And it was being done in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where the Gentiles themselves could go and pray. So how could they go and pray? How could they enter into the place that was required for them to go? How could they come and, and give their prayers and whatever offerings when that place was blocked and there was no place for them to go and worship the one true God? But the Gentiles wouldn't be the only one affected. It's not all that difficult to imagine that with all of the hustle and bustle and commotion going on in the court of the Gentiles, that the noise just didn't stay there. It would spill over and be heard in all the other courtyards as well. It's a little bit like when something happens in the foyer here and the doors are open. Our attention is turned away from what's happening. Well, how much more so than when the feast is filling the city with thousands of people and there's all this commotion going on with the buying of animals and the noise that they make, the exchange of money and the coins falling on the floor and all of the talking that's going on as people try to go into the courts and worship God. It's hard to worship in quietude when there is noise and commotion going on. So here we have the place that had been set apart for worship had become a place of sacrilege and greed. The Gentiles couldn't enter there those coming for the feast were being exploited, at least at some level. The temple had been turned into a place of commercialism. 
instead of a place of holiness and reverence. And Jesus himself is not against business, per se. He's not against commerce, per se. After all, gifts are given to us according to God's will on what we can do and what we can make and how we can earn our living. He was against where it was taking place. Those things could have been taking place nearby and not desecrate the temple of God. What maybe had started out as a convenience had brought dishonor to the Lord. It kept people from coming to worship in spirit and truth the way they were commanded to worship. And so Jesus, as the prophet, swings into motion. Verse 12 tells us he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And there's an interesting word here for, behind drove out. The, the original word is ekbalo in the, in the Greek, and it means to expel. It, there's a physical action involved, to throw out. And it's actually the word that is used for Jesus when he expels demons out of those who are possessed. It's a physical word. It's a word of action. But he also overturned the tables. Tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He takes matters into his own hands. He begins to cleanse the temple. And we can imagine then that ta- tables are going airborne and being overturned and coinage is flying all over as stacks of money are knocked over. Animals are loose from their pens. But there's also something interesting about this word to overturn. While it literally means to turn upside down, it can also mean to reverse or to re- to invalidate an established system. There's a not-so-subtle judgment going on by Jesus as he takes these actions into his own hands because of what is happening in the temple on that day. And so Jesus is challenging everybody, the buyers, the sellers, the worshipers. People are shouting. There's pandemonium everywhere. And don't miss it. Jesus is performing an action of judgment on the temple. Now, at this level, at this point, it is still somewhat symbolic. He is calling the people to take heed of what they are doing, to repent and turn to the ways of the Lord before it is too late. But he will announce later in Matthew, because the people are not turning, the people are not changing, they are not repenting, that judgment will come against his temple. And in just a few decades after Jesus performs this symbolic judgment, he pours out an actual judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He is protecting God's house. And as he is the son of God, and as the temple is the house of his father, there's a sense where he's defending his home turf. He's protecting his own house with this active judgment against the sacrilege, against the pride, against the, the commercialism that is going on inside. He's acting out the protection of God's house. But then he goes on and he instructs them in the proper use of God's house. The proper use of God's house. And he gives the reason for his righteous anger on this day. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. And in the context of Isaiah 56, there is God's promise of salvation for the nations that even the Gentiles would be allowed into the temple. And God was to be honored in his house by people coming from all the nations. But what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations had been cut off from the Gentiles. And even the priestly caste were exploiting those who came. This was going to get the attention of Jesus the prophet. My house 
shall be called a house of prayer. Let's go to verse 13 and read the whole verse. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So the first part of this verse comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. The second part comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where God condemns the improper worship that is going on in the temple. He condemns the abominations of what is happening, all while people are pretending to be worshiping God. In fact, let's read what God said through Jeremiah several hundred years before these events in Matthew 21. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 11 of Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Twice in that passage, the Lord says, this house, which is called by my name, is to be a house full of worship of those who come in spirit and truth to worship him in holiness. And it says, you, you offer all of these things that have nothing to do with what I've given you, blaspheming my name, and then you say, because I'm in the house of the Lord. I'm okay. Well, God brought judgment upon them. And a similar thing is happening now in the first century. The Jewish establishment had become corrupt. They thought they could do whatever they wanted in the temple because after all, it was the temple. And that God would allow it. And Jesus is showing them otherwise. The danger is we're not to put our trust in anything other than God and his clearly prescribed ways to worship him. God does tell us how he wants to be worshipped in his word. God does give us those things that we are to do during our worship time together. And he does warn us against adding anything man-made into our worship services. And so we need to be careful to continually watch over ourselves, watch over what we do to make sure that all that we are doing is putting our trust in him, our glory in him, our reflection on him, and on his ways and his purposes. This temple was to be for prayer, sacrifice, and worship. That's its proper use. It's not to be used for the buying and selling of goods. It's not to be used to conduct the regular business of the week. It's not the place to conduct those things, what we can do as a citizen of a particular country. The place of God is reserved for the things of God. And he is to be feared. And so the translation that we have in our Bibles, a den of robbers, is a very good one. There's theft going on from the glory of God. There's theft going on from one another. It's things that are happening that are not appropriate for God's people and God's house. And so Jesus performs this act of judgment. And in doing so, as he always does, he fulfills prophecy. The end of prophet Zechariah, we find this promise. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Jesus came into the temple. He warned them, don't continue to do this. My house shall be a house of prayer. It should not be a den of robbers. 
pay attention, repent while there is still time. That they refuse to do so will show itself in the events that come at the end of this Passion Week 2,000 years ago and ultimately will show in 40 years later when they were destroyed. So Jesus shows then that he is truly the Lord of the temple. As a prophet, Jesus brings judgment. He cleanses the temple and criticizes the priesthood for allowing this to go on in God's house. As a king, he exercises his authority over all that is happening. But there's something else going on. Jesus cleanses the temple. But he's already given hints that he is the true temple. He is the true meeting place between men and God. No one comes to the Father but through me, he says. And as he pours out his spirit on his people, his people are then declared to be the temple of the living God. Jesus is showing us that the new covenant is coming in its fullness where people from all nations are called in and swept into this great covenant that God is making. And Jesus is showing by his actions that he is greater than the temple. As he said back in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. He's not only Lord of the temple, he's Lord of our lives because we who know Jesus Christ today and dwelt by God the Holy Spirit are the temple of God. And he's to be Lord over our lives and all that we do. Jesus is greater than the temple. Secondly, Jesus is worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise. He's already shown us that he is Lord over the temple, but he's not going to show that just alone. He's going to show his power and his compassion as he's in the temple as we see he's setting the sick free. In almost a throwaway line, Matthew says what Jesus does next. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. He shows that he is the Messiah. And we've already seen several times as we've seen Jesus performing his miracles that giving sight to the blind was the first sign that the Messiah would perform. But think of the situation of those that were blind and who were lame. According to the law, they're not allowed into the tabernacle. They can't go all the way in to offer prayers and sacrifices. They were considered unclean. And Jesus, as he is cleansing the temple shows that he also can cleanse those that are unclean from sin and sickness. And as he does so, he qualifies them now to fully enter the worship of the one true God. He heals them physically. He heals them spiritually. He shows continually who he is and what he has come to do. And at the meeting place of God, those that are sick meet the Son of God, who is the Messiah. And Jesus not only then cleanses the temple, he cleanses from sickness and disease. He's the true temple, the true meeting place of God, the true healer, the true place where we receive forgiveness and healing and we're set apart for service and where we receive the joy that he has. As he has served the Lord, he sends us out by the power of his spirit with the fruit of the spirit, which is joy. And there's something interesting going on here because this is the last recorded miracle in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew, like all of the gospel writers, chooses his data carefully. They had many stories and many teachings and many events that they could choose from as they're giving their summary of the life of Jesus. And this is the last recorded healing miracle in Matthew. But what's interesting is it's the only one that Matthew records in Jerusalem. 
He clearly wants to draw attention for his early readers to who what Jesus is and what he is doing. The secret is now out. The Messiah is here. The blind and the lame and the others that men consider disqualified from the temple are now brought in by the healing grace of Jesus Christ. And I think there is an Old Testament story behind this that adds color to the events that are taking place here. In 2 Samuel 5, David wants to come into the city. He wants to capture the city. It's not yet under his control. But his enemies taunt him. No, you won't come into this city. Even the blind and the lame shall keep you from coming in. But David outfoxes his enemies. And he conquers them and he comes in and takes over the city. And then he turns the taunt on his enemies by saying, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. He threw his enemies out so they could no longer come in. But Jesus is the full redeemer. He's the true son of David. He's the ultimate son of David who does not keep the blind and the lame out of the house of the Lord. He heals them so that they can enter fully in to the true worship of God. Think about it. We know ourselves well enough to know that we were once blind and lame to the things of God. But God in Christ healed us, gave us eyes to see and hearts to believe. And, and as we heard the great news of Jesus, we ran to him and we cried out, have mercy on us, O God. And as he healed us, we can shout Hosanna to the son of David. He is truly the one who, when he cleanses the temple, he cleanses from sin, he sets the sick free. But then we have the response. Seeing, but not seeing. Verse 15. But when the chief priest and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he did, you notice that they see it. They saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. With his power, with his authority, Jesus brings about a great reversal. I like how commentator David Turner says, he cast out the corrupt insiders to make room for the unclean outsiders who are now made clean and brought in. That's the hope of the gospel. When we were far away from God, lost and without hope, he sent his son to die for us and draw us into his presence and making us friends who were heretofore his enemies. Jesus healed the blind. He heals the lame. He cleanses the temple. His enemies see it. They know that these are wonderful things. They hear the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. The children are probably just repeating what they have heard the crowds chanting in the days before. But there's a reminder to us that children are constantly listening in to what, we are, what they are hearing, what they are saying, and they're listening to what we say. And so parents, teach your children well. Let them hear you be the ones that say, Hosanna to the son of David, so that they'll repeat it, so that it'll become part of their own heart language instead of some of the other things that they may hear us say. Notice we're told that it is the chief priests and the scribes. They know what's going on. They're part of this cabal, the whole council of religious 
leadership among the Jews that is mobilizing against Jesus, whether it be the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the chief priests. And they all gather and mobilize against Jesus because they see that he is threatening the status quo. Matthew has only mentioned the chief priests three times up till this point. But he's going to mention them another 35 times before we get to the end of Matthew. Seeing, but not seen. Moreover, they're seething and not seeking. They were indignant. It's the same word that had been used of the ten disciples in Matthew 20, verse 24, as they were angry that James and John had come and requested special places of honor for themselves, thinking that somehow they deserved this place of honor, and were told that the ten were indignant. It's the same word here. They're indignant that Jesus is receiving honor. This is all just too much for them. It's bad enough that they had to endure hours of the people cheering on Jesus. It's bad enough that Jesus has cleansed the temple as a symbolic judgment. But now even children are praising him and he's receiving honor. It's too much. Who does this one think he is? And they see the wonderful things that he is doing, but they don't like it. He's performing the acts of God in cleansing the temple and cleansing the sick. Children are even praising him just like they would God. These religious leaders do not have eyes to see, and they're angry. But why are they angry? Are they angry at the injustice and the exploitation and the wrong worship that's going on in the temple? No, no, they were benefiting from that. They're indignant that Jesus is receiving praise. He's getting the highest praise. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, he's going to remind them of scripture and singing. Verse 16 says, and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? It's their way of saying, Jesus, get them to be quiet. This is ill-guided worship. They want Jesus to silence these children. But Jesus turns it on them. And Jesus said to them, yes. Do you hear what they're saying? Yes. What a wonderful response. He says, I hear the praise of the children. I hear their prayers. And that's good news for us today, we who are the children of God. As we pray, as we praise, he hears us. He enters into them. As we're told in the Psalms, God inhabits the praise of his people. Well, Jesus inhabits as well our praise as we worship him. He enjoys them. He enters into fellowship with them. But he goes on and says, yes, but have you never read? This is delicious in its irony. Here he's talking to the the scholars, the main Bible teachers of the day, the ones who said they knew the law, but what they really knew was their traditions to apply the law. And he says, have you never read? Have you never opened your Bibles? Do you have any understanding what's going on in the Word of God? Jesus is confronting them very directly. He's rebuking them for their pride. And he goes on and he quotes out of the Greek translation of Psalm, chapter, Psalm 8. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. God ordains praise. He ordains that even children will worship him. And we know if we're around children enough that they love to sing. They love to praise things. They love to praise flowers. They love to praise bugs. They love to praise animals. And if we're teaching the things of God, they're going to love to praise God. 
And Jesus has already reminded us, has he not, that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like children with that deep, heartfelt trust in the Father for all things, including even praising him and trusting him and worshiping him. I didn't plan this originally, but this week as I was preparing, I thought how wonderful it is that we arrive on this passage on the day that we're having a baby dedication to remind us of the blessing of children, to remind us of their desire to want to sing and praise, and let's not take it out of them. I was reminded of a story of a longtime Sunday school teacher who said, those little five-year-olds, they have that wiggle given to them from God. Don't you try to take it out. There's this idea of let them praise and be children and use that energy and joy to worship God. So as Jesus uses the example of children and says we must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, he uses children as an example of praise, of just praising in the highest praise. And so, friends, let's praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is doing something very clever here. He knows that God alone is worthy of praise. He knows that God has ordained that children praise God. And then he receives the praise of these children and does not rebuke them. He's showing once again that he is God in the flesh. That he has all the prerogatives and rights and privileges and responsibilities and powers of God. That's why it was good for the crowds to shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why we can say the same thing today with a heart full of joy as a child trusting a father. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And lastly, we see then setting the scene for the week. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus has confronted now the religious center of Israel, the priesthood, the temple, he declares himself he's able to bring judgment over the temple, over what is happening there. He knows that he is now the focal point of worship, that he is the one through whom we get to God. He has said that he is greater than the temple. And in words and actions, he foreshadows that the days of the temple are numbered because he has come to do and fulfill all to which the temple pointed. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. He cleanses the sick. And as we'll see next week, he's getting ready to cleanse the city and cleanse the nation. But on this day, 2,000 years ago, after he had cleansed the temple and after he had received the praise of children and after he had rebuked the chief priests, he returns home to Bethany, likely spending time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as I said last week, if we overlap the different gospel accounts, he would have just been in Bethany a few days before when perhaps that was the time he raised Lazarus from the dead. But in any case, during the feast, when Jerusalem would be overrun, lodging would be hard to find. So it's likely that he would have spent it with his friends. Jesus is a prophet who speaks the words of God. But Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the very word of God. Therefore, he's the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. And under the new covenant, he's our meeting place with God. And he invites you to meet with God through him. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As we read.
reached that point in your life where you recognize I have nowhere else to go but through Jesus so that I can know God. If not, I pray this morning you would have ears to hear God calling you and say, come. Come and believe. Come and repent. Come and receive. Jesus will go back into the city the next morning. There's still much to accomplish for the rest of this week. What was just a few days for Jesus takes eight chapters in Matthew and it's going to take us many months. But it's important for us to see who Jesus is as he enters the city on this day. And he's king. And he's priest. And he's prophet. Next week we're going to see Jesus symbolically judge the city and the nation. And power that is available to us in prayer. But what are some lessons we can take away? Well, because Jesus is Lord of the temple, in our worship we will focus on those things that he prescribes and that bring honor to him. We want to do what he's commanded us to do because in that there is fullness of joy and purity of worship. Because Jesus still cleanses the temple, us, still working in us, if we're in Christ, we're not yet all that we're going to be. That ongoing growth and sanctification is continuing, and so we need to continue to confess our sins and to repent, to turn away from bad behavior, turn towards good behavior, get rid of the bad habits, move in good habits. As he still continues to cleanse us as the temple, let's confess our sins daily and repent. And because this temple is a house of prayer, we commit to being more active and diligent in prayer, personally and corporately. There is no greater power up privilege that we have than to pray to the living God. Fourthly, because he is worthy of the highest praise, we commit him the first place in our law, our worship, our praise, and our adoration. That's why we start the week worshiping Jesus. Re recognizing that he rose from the dead, recognizing that in this new creation we start out each week praising him, setting our minds and hearts in line with his so we can walk with him throughout the week so let's commit to him our best praise our highest praise and because childlike praise is ordained by God we will praise and trust our heavenly father with clean hearts as we walk with him moment by moment and day by day let us pray oh father as we think about what Jesus did on that wonderful day and as we think about its implications for us in Christ, we are grateful that Jesus was fulfilling all prophecy and all law so that we could be in a right standing before you. And Father, we thank you for the privilege that by your Holy Spirit you can call us the temple of the living God. You're pleased by your Spirit to dwell within us. Father, may we be temples that are pure and righteous and useful for your glory. And so help us, Father. Help us by your Spirit to glorify your Son for the good of your church and for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen.